Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. It was an amazing study published in 2018 by Rafael de Cabo, a friend of mine at National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And he was trying to figure out what diets allowed mice to live the longest or the shortest. And he mixed up combinations of food with different protein, carbohydrate. And he found that all the diets essentially gave the mice the same lifespan. But some groups were only given food for two hours a day and they ate like it was a feast. They were so hungry, they ate it all. But they ate roughly about the same amount of food, maybe a little less, but they weren't super skinny. And those mice lived the longest. It's just as important to worry about when you eat as what you eat. Your body goes into defensive mode and raises energy levels so that sirtuins can protect the body. If you don't put your body at least part of the time during the day into this defensive mode, it won't bother protecting your body. It won't repair systems. It won't preserve the information. You basically just turn into a, a giant ball of, mush. ball of mush. That's longevity scientist, Dr. David Sinclair. And this, and this. is episode 98 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Friends, it's certainly been a, a short while since the last episode together. It's really good to, to be back here with you. I'm the host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast, a qualified physiotherapist, nutritionist, and I'm currently in the final editing stage for my book, my first book, being published with Penguin. Alrighty, today's guest, Dr. David Sinclair geneticist, molecular biologist, and professor at Harvard University who is very much at the cutting edge of aging and making anti-aging a real thing, a real possibility. He's also the author of an incredible book called Lifespan, one of the only books in the past year I've read in entirety. And that says something about the book itself and, and also how much spare time I have he did an incredible job uh, taking very, very complex science and turning it into a really enjoyable and fascinating read. In this episode, we walk through David's mind, how he sees the aging process, some of the findings from his laboratory, and what we can personally do to slow down the aging process. It's a deep dive. You guys know I I like to understand mechanisms. I, I really do hope this conversation is as interesting and thought-provoking as it was for me. Okay, let's do this. This is me and David Sinclair recording from the Lower East Side, Manhattan, New York, literally days before the city went into isolation. See you on the other side. David Sinclair, welcome. Simon, thanks for having me on. It's a it's a pleasure to sit down with you here in the the Big Apple. Yeah, it's pretty big. And uh, during this uh, pandemic, makes for interesting times. Uh, yeah, we should talk about uh, diet and immunity. Uh, that would be a a topic that I think a lot of people would be interested in. Definitely, definitely. Now, I'm absolutely fascinated by your work and and all of the exploration that you've done in the field of aging and and really just this idea of how someone who's 65 can feel like they're 35 while someone else who is the exact same 
biological age, chronological age, born on the same day, can feel much older perhaps than they even are. And I thought a nice place to start this would be before we sort of dive into the nitty gritty, just to talk about your new book, uh, Lifespan. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Did a, an incredible job putting that together, everything from the the way that you communicated the science to the history. It's a beautiful read and, and the illustrations are incredible. So well done on on that. I'm interested to know from a writer's point of view what the the process of pulling all that together was like. Oh, well, thanks for the kind words. And I'm glad you mentioned the illustrations. Uh, a lot of people just ignore them or at least uh, assume that, that, you know, it wasn't that much work. But the illustrator, Katie Delphia, spent a whole year pulling her hair out, trying to put my brain onto the page. So I think they're wonderful. Uh, the process was really interesting. The, the book turned out way better than I expected. And and what happened was I have a co-author who's a very good writer who isn't a scientist. And I'm a scientist who, you know, I'm a pretty good writer, but I'm not able to put the whole thing into a, a beautiful arc and a story. So what we did was we we basically, Matt uh, LaPlante and I spent a year together brainstorming, whiteboarding, calling each other, hanging out uh, on weekends. And uh, basically we became one person and he made me a much better writer. And I think I made him a somewhat of a scientist. But what emerged out of that back and forth with, with him writing some drafts and me editing and putting in facts, we ended up with a book that no one human, I think, could have written. How, how difficult was the, the process of taking rather complex ideas in science and being able to, to put that into a digestible manner? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely difficult to do because the topic that we're talking about is, is not a simple one. We're talking about aging. And what I wanted to do with this book was to write something that had never been done before. I mean, there are plenty of books about what to eat and about aging itself and how to avoid it, but it hadn't been put in the wider context of, of planetary history, human history. I mean, anyone who's read Sapiens hmm. knows that it's a good read, right? And I wanted to write something like that, which gives you a lot of practical information, but puts it in a context where you think differently about your life and about human history and where we're going as a species. And that's not easy, right? You're covering, you know, billion years of history all the way up to mm. present day and then the future. But, you know, thanks to Matt's work and, and the back and forth, I think we ended up with a story that's very readable that carries you on a journey through time and space. And the, the future part, which we may or may not get towards the end of this conversation, if we don't, we'll save that for a, another episode where we can sit down again, maybe in Australia the next time. But I found that fascinating. And I found that for you, obviously, that was an important aspect of the the overall story to address, given that you were putting forward a theory to see the world with a human species living much longer, that you needed to also consider what effects that would have. Yeah, well, what happened during writing of the book was that we were making some of the biggest discoveries in my career and possibly in the field, we'll see. But we, we spent 20 years working on genes that control aging and how to slow the process down. But right in the middle of writing the book, we made a discovery in my lab and a couple of other labs around the world simultaneously that aging is actually reversible and you can reset the age of, of cells and, and the body of animals. We think it's true for us as well. And what that led me to do was to change the, the story 
from one where, yeah, we can slow this down and maybe get a few extra years to, holy crap, what if we can reset the age of the body? And here we were restoring the eyesight of mice in my lab who were blind from old age. And I became much more optimistic about the future just during, during the time I was writing the book. And what ended up happening, which I'm really pleased about, was that I was able to, at the moment, write down and convey with, with Matt, my co-author, what it was like to make those discoveries. So I hope as a reader, people get a feeling of what it's like to make a potentially momentous mm. discovery for humanity. Definitely. I, I mean, when I first read it, I felt like I was getting that cutting edge information you know, that this is, this is happening right now. And you feel that sense of excitement and I can see it on your face now. Well, what, one of the things that is incredible actually, and maybe, maybe is unprecedented is that the studies and the results in the book actually have preceded the scientific publication. And so we're just in the process of getting those papers formally published, which take about a year. So the, for the first time, the, the public is learning things ahead of when scientists are learning them. Now, I'm sure by now the, the listeners, if they're not familiar with you, could tell that you, you have an Australian accent. Not the strongest of Australian accents, I must admit. It may have changed a little bit over the years. But I think that's a nice place to start, going back to Australia. It's, it's always nice to have an Australian on the show. What was life like growing up for you? I know that your, your grandmother had a huge influence on the, the way that your career has sort of developed and, and more importantly, the mark that you want to leave on the world. Can you take me back to sort of your childhood and, and how your journey sort of panned out over the years ending up in this field? Right. Well, I am proudly Australian and, and now American. I, I moved from Australia in 1995, just to give context. So I've spent about half my life in the US and half in Australia. If anyone's read the book, and, and hopefully some listeners will will also pick it up, you'll see that the book is starts out immediately in Australia. The first sentence is, I grew up on the edge of the bush. So I grew up on the northern suburbs of Sydney, a little town called St. Ives. And in those days, that was the edge of Sydney. Right now, it's, you know, it's the middle of, basically middle of uh, suburbs where there are plenty of yeah, yeah. retirement well. village, you know. Yeah. But uh, in those days, there were still farms. And because my parents had just built a house, uh, having torn down the bush as they used to in those days, there were a lot of animals around and the house was right on the national park. And so I was influenced a lot by nature. You just go out the front door and you've got goannas and spiders and and these sorts of things, snakes in the, the cubby house. And I was climbing trees and jumping off things. And so it was a really great childhood. Couldn't have asked for a better one. But I also had free reign in those days. You know, even my parents compared to the average parents were pretty open-minded. They didn't mind if I just went off and walked for hours in the bush. These days, you wouldn't let a kid probably do that. But we used to get lost, my brother and I. And it was that sense of adventure, trying to find new things, trying to find the upstream source of the rivers that were in our backyard that you know led me to, to want to be an explorer. But I was also very much into science because both my parents were scientists. They were biochemists. So dinner conversations, instead of revolving around politics, they were more talking around blood tests and sputum and feces, which was made for an interesting <laughs> dinner. So you, you, from an early age, really wanted to understand how things worked. Yeah, I still do. You know, every object I see, I wish I could open it up and see what's inside to figure out how it works. And biological things, I think, are the most fascinating. They're the most complicated things we know of in the universe. 
and they're actually much more difficult to figure out than things we build as humans. And so I took on that challenge. And then I also took on probably the biggest challenge of all, which is to, trying to understand why living things don't live forever. And your your grandmother, I know that you've you've mentioned her a few times in some of the interviews that you've done. What specifically was, was so important about her influence on you? Uh, well, so my grandmother taught me that humans can do great evil in the world. She grew up, she lived through World War II and then the aftermath in Europe, in Hungary. And so when she got to Australia, she thought this, this is the best place on earth. There's a lot of money and great weather and people are friendly. And so I was raised partly by her. She was still a young grandmother in her 40s when I was a kid. And so she taught me that, that humans can also do great good for the planet. And she said, David, we humans have to put all of our effort into making humanity the best it can be. But she was also, she taught me a second thing, which was rules that humans make are artificial and uh, <laughs> a lot of them are just stupid. And so I grew up rebellious, just like her. I guess, unfortunately or fortunately, our children have inherited that trait too. So they're quite rebellious, these teenage kids of ours. We've got three of them. And I can see my grandmother in our eldest daughter, everything that the world says she shouldn't do, she goes and does. <laughs> so growing up in, in Sydney, did you then go into university and start studying science in, with, in Sydney before moving to America? I did. I, I went to the University of New South Wales and uh, studied genetics, what in those days was called genetic engineering. Was that the Randwick campus then? Right. Yeah. Right. And in those days, genetics was a, a brand new thing that genetic engineering, molecular biology. But actually, I enrolled in the wrong course. I, I was pretty stupid. And I, my parents weren't helping me at all with choices. So I enrolled in a genetics course. So it ended up being a classical genetics degree, which was all about the sex chromosomes of ants and evolutionary history and ecology. So I studied spiders and marine biology. And then later, after I got my undergraduate, my, my uh, first degree, I realized I, I picked the wrong, the wrong course. So I had to go back and uh, learn molecular biology and biochemistry, which I then did. But I think that was very helpful, that mistake. It gave me a, a wider view about biology. So I wasn't just focusing on, on the Petri dishes and the molecules and the test tubes. I saw the world from a different view, which was as an ecosystem. So at, at this stage, had aging even sort of come into the picture? Had you thought about the science of aging? Aging is always on my mind every day. Uh, I think about life and death. It's, I guess it's just the, probably what my grandmother taught me, that life is fragile. And I realized that you know, we're, we're, we could all be snuffed out in a second. And now we're living through a world where that's even possible. What do you think of the virus situation right now? I think it could be a lot worse. This this is going to lead to a number of deaths, mostly of elderly people. It's hard to hard hard to really work out, isn't it, online when there's so much noise and in the media what what to believe and what's actually happening. Well, yeah, I mean, this is fairly predictable. In fact, in my book, you'll recall I have a whole chapter called "Ready for the Worst" about this this was coming and what the world will be like when this comes. So, anyone who wants to see what the future pretends uh, it's, there's a whole section. Um, but what I see is, is coming is it's going to be like a, just a really, really bad case of, of flu. It's not the end of the world. And there will be a lot of family members who die, which is, of course, extremely tragic. So we shouldn't take this lightly. But it's not the end of civilization. In a few years, you know, we'll, we'll still be shaking hands and getting on with life. But what it means is that 
uh, we should all be as healthy as possible, right? Most people who are dying right now have other chronic diseases, uh, whether it's diabetes or they're, they have lung conditions, they were smokers. These are the people that are the most susceptible. And actually what this tells us is that if we could tackle aging and keep the elderly fit and healthy and boost their immune systems, this wouldn't even be a crisis. It would be as bad as a, a typical flu. So aging research, some people say, oh, well, who cares about aging? We're more worried about the, the virus. Well, the reason the virus is harming us is because we have sick old people. And I, I bet if we were more focused on treating aging and being able to reverse it, we wouldn't have this problem. Are, are problems like this exacerbated by population growth at all, do you think? Oh, you mean the virus? Yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, I mean, here we are in, in New York City. If we weren't so connected and bumping into each other all yeah. the time and touching the same things, these viruses wouldn't spread. So yeah, it's, it's a big problem. And you know, compared to 1918, where they, they didn't even have air, air travel, we're extremely susceptible. You can see how quickly it's spreading. But on the flip side, we've got so much better communication that I think we can slow it down at least until the weather improves here. It'll probably head down under for a number of months during the winter over here. Yeah, scary. It's certainly scary. Our generation hasn't faced anything really scary to our lives. We don't expect to die ever. Kind of feels like a, a, a movie, right? One of those movies where everyone's about to start bunkering into their basement and it's kind of, that's already happening in some places. Uh, it definitely is new territory for humanity. We'll see if bigger, big events like the Olympics end up being. And there, I can see a COVID-19 movie in, in five or 10 years' time already. Yeah, for sure. Did um, you see there, Outbreak ever? Did you ever watch that movie? Uh, I don't think I saw it, but I've read a lot about it. The, the Ebola. Yeah. Yeah. And there was one Contagion. Yeah, Contagion. Soderbergh's movie. Yeah, some people are watching that again. I don't recommend it. You'll just freak yourself mm. out. What we don't know yet is the rate of lethality. And it depends on how well you're measuring the system. If you have bad testing, which the US currently has, then it's 10 times worse than flu. Yeah. But probably it's not that bad that young people don't seem to be susceptible and they may just have flu-like symptoms and they don't go to the hospital. So I think it's it's not as bad as those numbers suggest, but it's, it's still really bad if you're an elderly person. Yeah. And I guess uh, this sort of speaks to the idea, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read your book, at a macro level, I sort of was thinking about how we're increasing lifespan currently and over the last hundred years if we look at lifespan lifespan admittingly has increased right but people are are living many years burdened by chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease or various cancers or, or type 2 diabetes so the health span and the overall sort of quality of life is not fully understood just by looking at life expectancy well that's absolutely right and and that's probably the biggest take-home message with this virus and with my book. And that is that even though we're living longer, we're not living better. And by we, you know, that's a, that's a generalization. There, there are two types of people. There are those that take care of themselves, those that eat well, those that move, those that exercise. And those people typically with a decent genome live into their 80s and they're still functional. They're fit. They're playing tennis. Those people generally don't have to worry about getting this infection. It's the people who said, I don't care about the future. I'm just going to eat my hamburgers. I'm going to put on a lot of weight. I'm going to smoke. Those people are the ones that are most likely to die during this pandemic. And you know, what's the lesson there? It's that 
hey, yeah, you can avoid chronic diseases, but we've forgotten that also if your body's not fit, you're susceptible to these acute diseases and infections as well. And these these chronic diseases, I guess, as a society, we very much are managing them as opposed to preventing them. And the the other sort of part of that macro lens looking in at, at what your the message in your book is that perhaps all of these diseases are manifestations of a similar root cause, which is somewhat described by your information theory of aging, right? Would you agree with that? Right. So this is the radical thought in the book is that aging pushes us to that cliff. And unfortunately, modern medicine, as we call it, is focused on treating people as they're falling off the cliff. And that's too late. It, it does frustrate me that your typical doctor, and I work with doctors all the time, I'm at Harvard Medical School, that their job is to treat sick people. And very rarely do doctors try to change the course of people's lives leading up to that point. And so it's often too late to treat diseases that have already taken hold. Take, for example, type 2 diabetes. There are drugs we know that prevent type 2 diabetes. There's certainly lifestyles that greatly prevent it. But doctors don't do anything about it until you've developed that disease. In fact, if you go to your doctor and say, I would like a drug to prevent type 2 diabetes, they'll say, no, you can only get it once, once you've got high blood glucose levels. That's completely backward. You, you want to prevent diseases before they start. And so that's what my message is about. And the information theory of aging says that we, we have this information in our bodies when we're born. It tells the cells how to read the right genes at the right time. That's what keeps us young and healthy and resilient. But cells eventually lose a lot of that information, how to read the right genes at the right time. And that's what leads to these diseases. And you can speed that up or slow it down. You can turn on genes that maintain the information to stay healthy. You can go hungry so fast. You can eat the right foods, plant-based. You can exercise. And the reason those things are healthy is that they preserve the information in the, in the body. Let's, so, let's go through that preservation of information. I know you talk about the sort of loss of epigenetic information and you have some really nice analogies in there around the, the scratching of the disc and, and whatnot. Perhaps we, before we move, I guess, to some of the, the lifestyle habits that we can do to affect that information at a cellular level, what's, what's actually happening? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there are two types of information in the body. Uh, one is the genetic information. That's just the DNA strand. And we can't do much about that. We don't get to choose our parents. It's a digital code. And actually, it's quite robust. So by the time we're 80, we still have a lot of our DNA intact. It's not as if we've lost our genetic information. It's the other type of information, not the genetic, but as you said, the epigenetic, which are the systems that tell the cell which genes to read and which genes to shut off. And uh, we discovered a set of genes that protect the body against aging. We discovered them and their role in aging about 25 years ago. And they're called sirtuins. And these genes tell the body how to preserve the epigenetic information. And actually the name sirtuin, the SIR part of that name, stands for silent information regulator. And that information is the key. They preserve information. So let me tell you just briefly what that actually means physically. The DNA strand isn't just flailing around in the cell. It's actually bundled up. It's either packaged in tight loops, uh, like you would have a hose reel on your driveway, or in loops that, that come out, big loops that allow genes to be turned on or what we say expressed. 
And when they're expressed, typically they make protein. And just, just to step back, these genes are handed down to us from our parents. Right. One f- copy from each parent. And we can't do anything about that. That's hardwired. That's hardwired, but it's only, your genes only control 20% of your longevity. Yeah. So the epigenome, 80%, is so much more important. And that's why it's so important to take care of yourself because it, the, attitude, the old attitude was, well, I can't do much about my genetics. And the geneticists told us that everything was genetics, yeah. which is complete BS. When my dad had a, a heart attack in early 40s, I remember being told, because his dad had had a heart attack, I remember being told by his cardiologist that this is genetic, this is something that you need to be very careful of in your future. And look, there may be a, a genetic component, but as you say, it can be a very limiting belief to think it's all genetics. Oh, it's it's deadly if you think that way. Uh, studies of twins in, in Denmark, they actually found that these twins that are identical, if they live different lifestyles, they could have you know, 10, 20 years different lifespan and health. So they, these loops of DNA and these bundles controlled by these sirtuins that we discovered, they tell a cell what type of cell it is. So a brain cell has the same genetic makeup as a liver cell and a skin cell, but the reason that, that they act differently is because of the epigenome. The epigenome says in the brain, turn on nerve cell genes and in the liver, turn on So the expression's different. Exactly. It's, think of it like a, a concerto. The pianist will play different notes and the, the concerto de- determines what type of cell it is. And what I'm saying with the information theory of aging is that the pianist becomes demented and starts playing the wrong notes. And so in the end, it's a cacophony and people start walking out of the theater, out of the concert, and the same thing happens to our cells. Our cells no longer read the right genes at the right time and nerves, neurons in our brain start malfunctioning. At the back of the eye, our, our retina and our optic nerve starts malfunctioning. And we decided to figure out why that happens. And then we finally figured out how to reverse that process. So let's let's jump into, in a minute, come into sort of where NAD fits into that with the sirtuins. But before that, this the, your information theory of aging and this loss of epigenetic information, am I right that there are a number of different pathways that affect that? Right. So there are three main sets of longevity genes, the sirtuins that I work on. There are seven of those genes in our body, and they've been around since life first formed and probably other reason that we still exist on the planet and haven't died out. They're survival genes. They're part of what I call the survival circuit that makes sure organisms survive and also control how the information is preserved. There are two other types. There's one called AMP kinase, which is a target of the drug metformin. Metformin is the world's leading diabetes drug. And then the third category, which is very important for a plant-based diet, is mTOR, the uh, mammalian target of rapamycin. That's the one that protein effects, right? Right. And in the in this case, you want lower amounts of protein so that mTOR is less active and that all these, these pathways, their job is to promote survival of the body and health. They preserve information, but they also ramp up your body's defenses against disease and aging at the same time. Okay. So let's come back to that. The, the sirtuins and this loss of epigenetic information, what have you found in your, in your lab and how does that relate to the NAD molecule? Yeah, so the sirtuins have two main jobs. One is to bundle up the genes that you don't need 
And that pattern needs to be preserved for you to stay young. Uh, And if it starts to unravel, you actually literally get older and susceptible to diseases. We can measure those changes. There's a clock in our bodies we can now read, and I can tell you exactly how old you are. Let's go over that. What, who, who came up with that? Well, so Stephen Horvath is the namesake of the clock, the Horvath clock, and he gets credit for it. And basically what it is, is it's, it's measuring chemical changes to the DNA that control the loops and the bundles of the epigenome. And these chemical changes are called methyls. And so DNA methylation at certain parts of the genome change in a predictable way over time. So when you read the methyl groups on the DNA, which we can do in a, you know, a few hours on a DNA sequencing machine these days, you can then put that into an algorithm. It'll say, okay, you say you're 50 years old, but actually you're 65 or 35. And uh, that really does depend on how you live your life. And we can actually now accurately predict how long you're going to live and when you're going to die. So are there, are there many companies that are offering that? Is it something that anyone can go and do? Well, I don't know about services in Australia. I know in the US, there's a couple of companies. There's one in Europe. Have you done it? No, I'm going are, are, to. Are you, are you scared by that? I mean, you look so young that I'm sure your results are going to be great. But I can imagine if it went the other way, it could be a bit disheartening, but at the same time could be motivating to make lifestyle changes. Well, that's what it is. A lot of people don't want to know, but my point is, if you don't know, then you're just ignoring. Driving off that cliff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't help to close your eyes and, mm. and drive off the cliff, Thelma and Louise style. If you see your data, as I, I've done many blood tests on my body and I know how I'm doing, it's motivational. And it, importantly, as I said before, the trajectory of your age can be changed. Mm. That extrapolation, if I say, Simon, you're going to die in uh, you know another 35 years, you're freaked out. But if I tell you, if you do this and that, you can actually change the trajectory, then that's empowering. Absolutely. And uh, and also it's important if you're younger than your age, you know you're doing something right too. Yeah. So this is this idea is that our chronological age does not always match with our biological age. Rarely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole new a whole new idea. And that's why one of the reasons I wrote the book is that most people don't realize. A, that there is a process that drives aging and B, that you can change it. Okay. So now let's, let's zoom back into the cells. So there's a loss of epigenetic information. How's, how's NAD feeding into this? So I mentioned that the sirtuins have two roles. One is the bundling of the genes and controlling information that way, but they do something else. They're also involved in repairing broken chromosomes, which is the biggest threat to any cell survival. So what's, what's a chromosome exactly? Well, the chromosome is, is the bundling of your, of your genome. The chromosome is just, if you look down the microscope and see a chromosome, that's just bundled DNA inside wrapped up in proteins. So think of it as a, a broken piece of DNA, broken chromosome, same thing. And the sirtuins, they move to help the, broke, the, the broken DNA and help it repair and stick together again. And this was a, is a very ancient system. We see this even in yeast cells, which I used to study. And so think about this. You've got the sirtuin protein that's sitting on a gene telling it to be switched off. And that maintains the cell's identity and function. That's important. But if you break the DNA, it has to go away, travel away and repair that broken DNA. Think of Hurricane Katrina. The emergency response people in New York had to fly down there and help fix the levees. Similar. And while they were away, things didn't go so well. The home was kind of neglected, bills weren't okay. paid, the grass overgrew. Because their attention's elsewhere. Right. They're distracted. 
Yeah. But once they fix the brake, you know, they fix uh, the levees, then they get to come home again. But there are some problems with that. Some of them don't ever find their way back or they get distracted by another emergency. And over time, if you do that over 80 years, cells eventually lose their, what we call gene expression profile because the sirtuins have been distracted. Think of it this way. It's like a a tennis match or a ping pong match where you're hitting balls back and forth and these sirtuins are going away, coming back, going away, coming back because we're experiencing broken DNA our whole lives. You can't avoid it. And if you have an X-ray or a CT scan, you make it even worse. What happens is that eventually that original beautiful pattern of bundles and loops of DNA that told the cell how to behave and be young is lost. And we can see that. We can read this in my lab when we look at old cells and and uh, samples from... And, and when you say repair, so that's what the sirtuins are trying to repair, that information, which is telling the cell what to do. Yeah, they are information preservers. Yeah. And they, they're preserving the genome by repairing it when it breaks. But they're also controlling the genes that maintain us when we're, mm-hmm. we're young and maintaining cell identity. And people say, well, you know, why don't you just use a different protein? Why do you need to use the same protein to repair and control the loops and bundles? Uh, the best answer I can give is that when the sirtuins move away to the, to the broken DNA, what they're doing is turning on a defense program. On come very early genes that, that help cells, I mean early as in embryonic genes, that help cells survive. Then they come back and switch off that defense program. You don't want your defenses on all the time, actually, because it's very expensive energetically. So you want to turn these programs on only just for a short amount of time. What happens as we get older is that these emergency systems are coming on all the time and the cell freaks out. It loses its identity. It doesn't function well and you get hyperinflammation. And we know that that's really bad for the body as well. So the best way to preserve youthfulness and this epigenetic information in the body is to make sure, make sure your sirtuins are hyperactive all the time so they can quickly repair and get back to where they came from. And we know that if you give cells more of the sirtuin genes, more copies, they're healthier. If we you've, make so, you've been able to do that, like in a lab setting. Yeah. So we 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 do work on mice, but what our job is is to make these mice healthier. And so we've we've engineered mice to have more copies of the sirtuin gene. There are seven of them, so we've tried a few of them. And in general, the the mice are healthier and live longer. For instance, if you make a mouse that has more sirtuin one gene in its brain, it will live longer. And there's another gene called sirtuin six. If it has more sirtuin six, it will live longer as well. So that in that scenario, there is like more sirtuins in absolute numbers, or they're just better able to come back from the repair site. There's more in that case. Okay, so that in our bodies, what can you do? There are there are actually three main ways you can boost up your sirtuins. You can't genetically modify yourself easily, nor would I recommend it. So there are three things. Let me go through them. One is you can make more sirtuin protein from the same genes. And we, we've known in my lab since 2005 that if you're, if you're hungry, you actually make more sirtuin protein so that you have more to repair that broken chromosome, broken DNA. So that's where fasting or calorie restriction comes in. Yes, but fasting does something else that's interesting. Well, it, do, it actually, fasting does all three things. So the, the three things are make more protein, give it more fuel, and then activate it as well. And so the, give it more fuel. You mentioned this molecule NAD. NAD is in our bodies. We make it all the time, but we have less and less of it as we get older. NAD is the fuel for sirtuins. So sirtuins aren't just 
blobs of protein, they are actually enzymes that carry out chemical reactions to preserve the epigenome. And they also need NAD to repair the broken DNA. And if they don't have enough NAD, they don't work efficiently. So we, we think that having more NAD in our bodies is a good thing. If we give mice NAD booster molecules, like a molecule called NMN, they do actually do better health-wise and they do repair their DNA better. I think some people may be wondering if, if the body, as we get older, the NAD we produce drops off. What's to say that that is not a quote-unquote normal part of aging and something that has a potential protective benefit in some way? Oh, because we, we've studied this um, as a field for the last 20 years and having low levels of NAD is, is horrible. People that have low NAD have diseases. People that are animals that are engineered to have low NAD are susceptible to diseases. So there's nothing good about having low NAD that we can tell. Okay. And where, this is a bit of, we're digressing here, but something just come, comes to mind. Where does Elizabeth Blackburn's work and telomeres come into this, this picture? Right. Well, so that it's all part of the information theory of aging. In our bodies and even in yeast cells, some of the sirtuin enzymes, these proteins that I'm talking about, are also found at telomeres. They protect the telomeres from getting shorter. And so by having more sirtuin activity, by fasting, by having more NAD fuel, we think that that also protects the telomeres as well. So it, it's all good having more uh, sirtuin activity. Okay, so the, the NAD molecule itself, the fuel, right? Uh, which will boost the sirtuin activity. What are, what are our options in terms of being able to boost that either directly or through our lifestyle? Right. Let's not forget to come to point number three, but that we'll get to that. So the second thing you can do is this NAD boosting. It turns out that if you exercise, particularly high-intensity exercise, or even just build up muscle, you will raise your NAD levels, okay? which is a good thing. And being hungry, as I mentioned, also raises NAD levels. Your body makes more NAD. Is it better to, to be hungry and in a calorie deficit? Or can you be, this is something that I find really interesting, can you create that hunger through intermittent fasting, say, for example, but then be eating enough calories throughout the day to, to not be losing weight and still get these benefits of increased NAD? 100%. That's what I do. We, we actually know that you don't need to be hungry all the time for this to work. We used to treat mice and, and check if caloric restriction made them live longer, and it did. But these mice were uh, hungry all the time. And by we, I, not my lab, other labs. What we then realized was that if you could just give them the same amount of normal food, but just put it in a short amount of time, a time-restricted feeding. And there was an amazing study that was published in 2018 by Rafael de Cabo, a friend of mine at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And he was trying to figure out what diets allowed mice to live the longest or the shortest. And he mixed up combinations of food with different protein, carbohydrate, fat. And he found that all the diets essentially gave the mice the same lifespan. But some groups were only given food for two hours a day and they ate it like it was a feast. They were so hungry, they ate it all. But they ate roughly about, about the same amount of food, maybe a little bit less, but they weren't super skinny. And those mice lived the longest. Wow. Right. It's a mouse study, right? So it doesn't mean that, that it's perfect. We still need to test this mm. in people. But what it told me was it's just as important to worry about when you eat as what you eat. So it's that meaning stress of being hungry. 
Yes. Uh, so it's a stress, but not in the psychological sense. It's really telling your body times are tough. You might not survive. Food's running out. Or in the case of exercise, you're running away from, you know, an invading army or a saber-toothed tiger. Your body goes into defensive mode and raises NAD levels so that sirtuins can protect the body. That's the whole idea of the information theory of aging, which is you, if you don't put your body at least part of the time during the day into this defensive mode, it won't bother protecting your body. It won't repair systems. It won't preserve the information. You basically just turn into a, a giant ball of mush. Uh, by the time you're 80, you're going to be suffering from a bunch of diseases. But you asked me very specifically, can you jam in your food and not lose weight? And the answer is yes. We know that very clearly. So what I do is I, I don't have breakfast. I try to skip lunch and I have a, a late meal. But I eat normally. I go to restaurants. I have a glass of red wine or two, uh, but maintain my body weight. If I start to put on weight, I will eat less for sure, even at dinner. And I'm typically eating salads for dinner if, if I need to lose a bit of weight. But that period of fasting, what it does is it, it, it actually does something very interesting. It doesn't just boost the levels of the protein and it doesn't just raise your NAD levels. It does a third thing. It releases monounsaturated fatty acids into the bloodstream, which were recently discovered you post that to activate SIRT1, one of the main sirtuin enzymes, which is incredibly exciting. So the main free fatty acid that you produce out of your white fat when you're hungry and it circulates through your body is called oleic acid. Now that may sound familiar because oleic acid is found in nuts, avocados, and olive oil. So you can eat oleic acid. We do if we have a Mediterranean diet, but also our bodies make their own oleic acid when we're hungry. And that, when you add that to the SIRT1 enzyme, becomes hyperactive. So think of oleic acid as the accelerator pedal and NAD as the fuel. So sirtuins are really the key. And, and, and these other boosting NAD or what you just described then, these are the oleic acid. These are, these are methods just to get the sirtuins working better. Right. I mean, you want them to be working better. That You don't always have to be turning them on. You can eat during the yeah, day. Yeah. Think of it like the stock market. It goes up and you can come down a bit, but over the long term, you're maintaining their levels. So you're getting that compounding effect day on day on day by having some of these lifestyle habits that are conducive to improving their activity. Exactly. And when you eat a meal, it doesn't just switch them off. These factors have, have a memory of being hungry. So think of it as pulsing. I think the best way to live a healthy lifestyle is to not always be hungry, not always be exercising. You do a pulse of one of these things. You're hungry for part of the day, you're exercising part of the day or part of the week. Um, but your sirtuins then have a memory of that activity and will stay high. And NAD levels don't go down immediately. They take hours to go down. Mm. And so I think you, you just want to keep hitting it to get those levels back up, make sure they don't go down to levels that will, you know, accelerate aging. Um, now, there are some ways if you, if you want to accelerate aging, it's pretty easy. You can do a few things. You can become obese. And so these, these are causing more breaks in those DNA? Well, the... The obesity is is probably not causing as much DNA breaks. The biggest problem is that the sirtuins are not active anymore. If you don't have oleic acid circulating through your body, you're not breaking down fat, you're just building it. And if you have obesity, we know that the SIRT1 protein isn't made as much. You don't just, you know, step one, make more protein. Obese people don't have as much SIRT1 in their bodies. So that basically the body's falling apart and losing its information to be young. Please, if you are gaining weight, overweight, 
best thing to do is to, to eat less, eat less often for sure. The other thing you can do is you can sit around all day. Sedentary lifestyle also reduces NAD and also reduces the sirtuin mm. protein levels. You're starting to describe the Western lifestyle here. It, it is. And you might say, well, why, why is our lifestyle conducive to shorter life and diseases? The reason is that you know, we're pretty lazy animals in general. We like to be comforted or feeling comfort. We don't like to overextend our bodies. It takes effort, right? But in doing so, we're basically telling our body's defensive systems, times are good. Plenty of food. We're not running away from anything dangerous. Don't put your effort and your energy into making your body last. Just, you know, just have a good time. And what happens is the body goes into growth and reproductive mode at the expense of building a solid body over time. Because the, our bodies only do one of two things. They, they grow and reproduce, make new tissue, or they put energy into survival and building a stronger body. Now, if you're telling your body, don't worry about building a stronger body, times are good, you will eventually fall apart. And that's what we call diseases. Um, but at some part of the day, you need to be in that defensive mode. So you want to cycle between the building, uh, sorry, the defensive mode, and then the, the growth reproductive mode. And if you do those two things by pulsing it during the day or during the week, then I think you're in the best shape. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting concept to sort of emphasize here that you're essentially describing what's happening at a cellular level before these diseases manifest. So for example, heart disease or, or type 2 diabetes, are you suggesting that it's this epigenetic loss of information that is the root cause? Oh, 100%. But it's a radical idea. And most doctors don't even think about aging. They just treat the symptoms. But that's exactly right. We're, we're aging even now in our 20s. The clock is ticking. We can measure it. It's only by the time we reach 50, 60, and certainly 70 and 80 that we see the end product of that when it's too late. Well, hopefully not too late with new technologies we're, we're working on. But for now, uh, it is too late. And, uh, and these changes are happening all the time, even in our 20s. And that's the revolutionary way of thinking, is that you shouldn't wait till you're 60 or 70 to do the right things because, you know, the clock is ticking. And if you wait till 60 or 70, it's very hard to actually bend that, bend that curve. What's exciting about that idea and, and empowering is that if there is a root cause underneath all of these very prevalent diseases, that means that there is a solution that can essentially cover all bases. Right. Well, that's the, the thing that makes me stay up at night with excitement is that if we can preserve the information and even find a backup copy of that information to reset the cell. Reset so how does that work? Where's, the, where's that backup copy? Well, okay, so here's what we know. We know that there are genes that we can turn on, at least in mice, that allow them to be young again. And so I mentioned the optic nerve for a reason. We've focused in on the eye because it's a pretty easy system to manipulate. And what we've done is we've taken mice that have gone blind from old age and we've put in these three genes, they're called OCT4, SOX2, and KLF4, OSK, we call them OSK. And these are genes that help us develop into a baby from a fertilized egg. But we don't turn them on when we're older. We basically switch them off. But what we found is if you switch them on when you're, and you're a mouse, if you switch them on in an old mouse, they reverse the age of cells. So we can take this old mouse 
put uh, this, it's a gene therapy currently, put it into the eye of a mouse, turn it on for three weeks, and those mice get their vision back. The nerves in the back of the eye remember how to be young again, remember how to function, and blind mice can see like they were young again. And that's because that the the information is sitting in the, the genome, but we're losing the ability to express it. That- yes, exactly. So the genes are still there. The cell is just not reading the right ones. So it's like the genes are essentially our instruction booklet of of what to do to stay healthy and young. Yeah, think of it this way. The genome would be the computer and the epigenome is the software and we're just reinstalling the software and everything works again. It's that simple. Where where does autophagy and mTOR sit into this sort of discussion? Yeah, so there, there are multiple hallmarks of aging that are, I think, largely the manifestation of the loss of information. And autophagy, just to remind listeners, is the process of getting rid of protein in the cell, typically misfolded or old proteins, damaged proteins. And it's basically the the garbage and the trash can of the cell. That's important, of course. We need that. And as we get older, we have less and less of it. And what happens is these old proteins screw up parts of the body, the brain, in the case of Alzheimer's, the eye, in the case of macular degeneration. If we can boost autophagy, we think that these diseases might actually go away. And so one of the things that we're excited about testing is if we reset the age of the brain or reset the age of the retina, then when we wake those cells up again and they turn on their youthful genes, they will then reverse those diseases. That's a radical way of treating disease. We're not treating the actual symptoms of the disease. We're treating the cause, which we believe is the aging process itself. And so that autophagy will then be hyperactivated again, like we were babies again. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. The the autophagy and that sort of cleaning up of damaged proteins or, or whatnot, call it garbage within the cell, is that linked with what the sirtuins are doing when they're doing their sort of DNA repair or is that separate? Well, so the sirtuins do a lot of things and they also control autophagy. And so by ramping up the sirtuins, they're doing many different things. They're preserving information, which is good for the long run. But even within hours of turning on sirtuins, you'll get more autophagy. You'll get telomere protection. You'll get improvements in insulin sensitivity. All So the, there are about eight hallmarks of aging, depending on which scientist you ask. And many of them your listeners will have heard of. Autophagy, nutrient sensing, stem cell preservation, telomeres, mitochondrial function, and energy. All of these things actually are under the control of the sirtuins. But also what you need is a healthy epigenome to be able to make sure that the genes that control these processes are youthful and not old. And so there's there's a couple of levels that you brought up. One is the immediate effects of sirtuins turning on these protections, but the long-term effects of making sure that the, the youthful genes are turned on to make sure that we slow down the loss of these uh, these protective processes. And mTOR, I know Dr. Volta Longo talks a lot about sort of mTOR and IGF-1. How does that sort of feed into all of this? 
Uh, so mTOR controls autophagy and upstream of mTOR is the insulin and IGF-1 signaling pathway. And so we, we actually know from mice uh, and even people that have low levels of IGF-1, they seem to be super healthy and protected against diseases. And one of the, the reasons for that is that cells have more autophagy, uh, even when these people are young. And that makes sure cells don't get sick from having these mis- misfolded proteins. But also... So here's why it gets a little complicated, and I don't want to get too complicated here. This defense network, the survival network that I, I call it, involves the sirtuins, involves mTOR, involves AMP kinase, those three pillars of aging, and they're all talking to each other. So actually, when you tweak mTOR, the sirtuins will get activated and vice versa. So they're all talking to each other. So you can actually restrict the amount of food you eat, and you're affecting all of these together. So essentially... There, there's multiple pathways, which are all, I'm just going to summarize this because we have gone fairly deep here and it's, it's good for, for my own learning as well, the listeners. So there's all of these pathways, which are feeding in to one another, essentially leading to the cell, losing that epigenetic information. It no longer knows how to express the genes in a manner that results in it staying youthful and understanding what type of cell it is. Exactly. So let, let me use one analogy uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, let's go back to Hurricane Katrina. You can look at it globally and say, okay, there's the, the Army Corps of Engineers or the Pentagon that's involved in sending out, sending out the troops. Okay. That's the epigenome. That's important because you've got these uh, systems that can be sent out to repair. But then also what they've got, they've got They've got shovels, they've got bulldozers, they've got the tools to keep the cell healthy as well. That's autophagy, uh, for example. So autophagy is a tool to make the cell healthy, but the central command system are the sirtuins, mTOR, the epigenome that makes sure everything works well, but stays young as well. Got you. So, and the idea is that our, our lifestyle can exacerbate this loss of genetic uh, epigenetic information. Right. So that by that analogy, aging is basically people in the Pentagon losing their minds and sending out the, the wrong tools to fix the cell or actually, you know, falling asleep on the job would be more like it, that they become complacent. They're not fixing cells anymore. Hurricane Katrina comes by and no one's there to help. So we've, sp- we've spoken about fasting. Let's, let's go through some of the other lifestyle factors in a, in a little bit of detail and just go through how they affect this epigenetic information. Maybe we start with with nutrition. So what what is it, you mentioned before, sort of a plant-predominant or plant-based diet, what is it about such foods that are better for preservation of epigenetic information versus other diets? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It, it turns out that the molecules that we and others have discovered turn on the sirtuins, the accelerator pedals can be found in the plant world and not in the animal world. It's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, so let me go back to, to basics. When we were working on um, trying to find a way to turn on the sirtuins, we looked at thousands of different chemicals in petri dishes, uh, well, in, in what are called microteta plates. And we found one that was super important for activating SIRT1. And it's this molecule called resveratrol. Uh, It's hard to say, sorry, I didn't name it, but resveratrol is the accelerator pedal that you can get from the plant world. That's in red wine, right? Yeah, it's in red wine. Now, we weren't studying red wine. I'd never heard of resveratrol. It just came out 
came up randomly in a screen of different molecules. But it turns out that there's a class of plant molecules called polyphenols, which have been known for decades. But what, what we discovered is that resveratrol and quercetin, or quercetin, some people call it, uh, physetin, these molecules are all shaped very similarly. And when you add them to the SIRT1 enzyme, even in a test tube, it makes SIRT1 superactive. The sirtuin becomes hyperactive, sometimes 10 times more active. Would green tea do that as well? Uh, yeah, there, w- there was a green tea component that actually also activated SIRT1. And it's really, I don't think it's coincidental that these molecules are activating our body's defenses against aging and disease. The reason that I think it happens is a concept that we call xenohermesis. Let me break that word down because it's kind of long. The xeno part just means we get that information or that signal from other species, xeno, plant, plant to human. The hormesis is really important. Hormesis is a good word to know. Hormesis basically means uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or live longer. It's this idea that we can trick the body into thinking that times are tough, that we are threatened with survival, and the body needs to fight back. So which kind of feeds back to the idea of being hungry for a bit. Exactly. It's, it's tricking the body, tricking the Pentagon, sending out the troops when there's not even an emergency. Uh, so you're not doing enough damage to cause permanent harm to the body, but you are doing enough to make the body realize that things could get bad in the future. It's almost, today this would be called biohacking, but it, it is more essentially trying to mimic what our ancestors would have naturally exactly. had. Right, right. You know, in old times, people didn't live long because we didn't have antibiotics and there were a lot of wars and- and uh, Infant mortality. Broken and- bones and this kind of thing, yeah. no hospitals, but but their bodies were on high alert. You know, and anytime we cut our fingernails, we have to realize that the reason we have to cut them is that our lives are so pathetically uh, easy compared to old times. But anyway, get, getting back to um, the hor- xenohermesis, the idea is that we can give ourselves the signal that we're under adversity by being hungry and uh, exercising. But we can also get that signal from the plant world. If we stress our plants, put them under adversity, they make a lot of these polyphenols that we know can activate the sirtuins. And by plant stress, what I mean is dehydration in, well, predation, if there's bugs on them. Also, you can have expose them to a lot of light, a lot of sunlight. They tend to make these molecules to survive themselves. So plants have sirtuins. So they're turning on these molecules, we believe, so that the plants survive. But by ingesting them daily for decades, your body also gets the signal that your food supply might be running out. And it also hunkers down. So our, our body is actually able to, to read those signals from the plant kingdom. That's what I'm suggesting. And it makes a lot of sense, right? The people who live the longest on the planet are those that are eating stressed out plants. So what are those? They're red wine, olives. Where do you get olives? A dry hillside, right? These aren't the lettuces you get from California that are basically white and liquidy. Mm. These are plants that have been, typical food these days comes from perfect conditions, which is the opposite of what I'm saying, which is good for you. You want organic, you want plants that are out out in the real world being, you know, even if some, you know, there's caterpillar munching on your, lettuce, that's, you might think that's disgusting, but it's actually probably helpful. And so I, I try to eat foods that are not grown under perfect conditions. Okay. So this is, this is polyphenols and you mentioned reservatrol. And I guess that's kind of bringing me to a question. 
related to potency, right, is is eating the whole food, is that giving us a dose which is optimizing that sirtuin activity or could you supplement at a higher dose and get a better effect? Is that something that you've looked at? And the second part of that question is where do sort of antioxidants fit into this? Because I know that they're regularly spoken about in this uh, field of, of anti-aging. Right. So the, the dose you get in red wine is really low. It's only a couple of milligrams a glass. And there's debate as to whether that is enough. What I, I've seen in my studies in the lab is that you don't need a lot, especially if you feed it over a long time. So people who are eating Mediterranean diet and drinking red wine their whole lives, basically from age 17, 18 in, in Italy, for example, these molecules accumulate in fat, in our fat, and they're released over, uh, over the day. So I think that, sure, one glass of red wine isn't going to cure diabetes, obviously, but over a decade or two, I don't see why not. Now, our data suggests that, that uh, it, it is beneficial. And part of the reason red wine is beneficial is because of the polyphenols, not just resveratrol, by the way, but there's all these other great polyphenols in there. It's a beautiful cocktail. Same with olive oil. Olive oil has the lake acid, but it also has polyphenols in there. Now, these are relatively low doses, admittedly, but as I said, you can accumulate them. But the other thing about olive oil that gets me really excited about this new, new data from this lab that recently published about a month ago is that you only need uh, nanomolar amounts, which is tiny, tiny amounts, thousand times less than resveratrol. So olive oil for me now, oleic acid is the go-to molecule. Like what are we talking, like one tablespoon, two tablespoons? Yeah, that's all. Yeah. And we, we know that that's healthy yeah, based yeah. on... You know, it's crazy. I mean, I see some some stuff online where people are completely demonizing uh, all forms of oils, but I the, the science really is not there to eliminate oils. Maybe maybe if you're really trying to lose weight and it's, it's, it's a very calorie-dense source of, of, of nutrients, but for, for healthy people, the, the science suggests benefits of including olive oil in the diet. 100%. And, and so I'm now ordering my olive oil from a company that ships them rapidly after harvest because a lot of olive oil is, is old and mm. can be uh, destroyed by light. So make sure you get fresh and in bottles that are not light penetrant. You asked me about antioxidants. Yeah, where do uh, they sort of fit into this? Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some enemies here, but I think the whole antioxidant fad is, is overhyped. And I'm not sure why it never dies. I think there's a lot of marketing involved here. But in my research, polyphenols are by far the majority working through activating the body's defenses. When did antioxidants sort of pop in this in this space? Because you've, I mean, you've been, what, three decades now essentially working in, in this field? Right. Antioxidant, this whole idea that that's how, how polyphenols work, it never seems to die, no matter what I say. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually. Let's just be straight. You can take a polyphenol and get rid of its antioxidant activity. We've done that. Take, so resveratrol has antioxidant activity. It's pretty weak, but you can mm. modify it. Maybe we should just explain the, the oxidation free radical sort yeah. of science. So it emerged in the 1950s and 60s, actually. Denham Harmon was one of the first guys who said that free radicals are bad. And they are bad, of course. You know, you can't drink peroxide and expect to be healthy. But when we exercise, we produce free radicals. We right? do. They're also healthy for us. You, what's, there's one theory called mitohormesis, which is that the free radicals generated in your mitochondria are beneficial. In fact, if you, if you give a worm 
these nematode worms that can live a long time. If you give them antioxidants, they live shorter. Yeah, wow. it's, it's, a, it's a fact. So antioxidants uh, might actually be dampening some of the benefits that you get from exercise and, and, and mitochondrial health. So these polyphenols, we actually know from my lab for sure that they're working by turning on these defenses. We have a strain of mouse that we've made in the lab that doesn't get activated by resveratrol. The SIRT1 enzyme is, in, is not activatable. And when we give it resveratrol, okay, it's still an antioxidant. If the antioxidant theory was right, those mice would still have the benefits, but they don't. You need the SIRT1 activation to get the health benefits and the longevity that's provided by resveratrol. And that, that's an that's a, that's a open shut case. Uh, that's case closed on that one. So resveratrol to get it in in the in the sort of what's the optimal dose and is it is it best through a supplement? Uh, so I supplement. I've been taking resveratrol at pretty high doses for the last 13, 14 years. That's towards the end of your book. I think that page would have been bookmarked by a few people. Yeah, page three hundred and four. <laughs> if anyone wants to, I think it could it, the, it could it could actually be one of the first pages people flip to. <laughs> Right, but if you want to understand why it works and why it might work better in certain ways for your body, I think read so. part two, which is yeah, about definitely. how this all works. Yeah, but uh, so I take a, gr- a gram of resveratrol. Actually, it's it's a teaspoonful. I just shake it into a couple of spoons of yogurt that I make, and so I've been doing that for a while. Uh, my father has too. Good news is I'm still alive. I measure my blood markers. I'm, as far as I can tell, extremely healthy, uh, and so it hasn't done me any harm. And uh, so I'll continue to do that. I also take NMN, which is an NAD boosting molecule. And Just so on, together, the, on the on the reserve control before we move forward, that you you putting that into yogurt so that there are some other nutrients to help it absorb. Well, not so much nutrients, though. I think that the yogurt that I make is is good for my microbiome. It's a special blend. But what I think is important is that resveratrol dissolves. If you just eat a capsule or a pill of resveratrol, it's going to go straight through your system. You'll just poop it out. And that's one of the reasons that clinical trials have been variable. There are some really good studies where they've shown resveratrol reduces blood sugar levels and improves, lowers inflammation, but others where they just gave a pill of resveratrol didn't dissolve, went straight through, and those trials showed no effect. So it's really important to be able to dissolve it in something. You could use olive oil, you could use something fatty. The yogurt for me works really well. Okay, let's let's continue through your regime, and then let's come back to nutrition because we're on we've we've jumped from polyphenols, but we'll I want to remember to to get to sort of protein and animal protein, plant protein. Um, so you just mentioned NMN. Let's let's walk through NMN, and I know you've spoken about NR as well, and what these guys do. Yeah, so the body makes NAD a few different ways. Uh, one way is to uh, recycle it once it's degraded in the body. And the recycling process rev- revolves around NR and NMN. These are what are called precursors to NAD. And by giving people or ingesting these precursors, uh, you actually can force the body to make more NAD, even if it doesn't want to. And so therefore you're mimicking exercise and fasting in a pill, we think. And when we give NR or NMN, uh, my lab and colleagues' lab, uh, we see improvements in endurance. We see the effects of exercise, even though the, these animals are not exercising, which is pretty interesting in its own right. So NR stands for nicotinamide riboside, and the body takes NR and makes NMN out of it. 
by sticking a phosphate group on it. Now you have nicotinamide mononucleotide or NMN, not to be confused with M&Ms. <laughs> I think those will make you live longer. <laughs> and then the body takes the NMN and turns that into NAD. So it's, it's okay. three steps. So you take NMN. I do. And often people say, why are you taking NMN instead of NR? Because NR is more freely available on the internet from people. By the way, I don't sell anything. I don't endorse anything. If anyone sees my name on the internet, they- Do people use your face? People must use they your do. face. It's, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to stop mm. that, sending out cease and desist letters. They pop up all the time, but uh, mm. yeah, it's frustrating. It's not much- I, yeah, I guess when you're sort of paving the way and, and uh, very much- explaining the science around this molecule, right? From a credible position, I can see companies finding it advantageous to be associated with you. It's it's tempting, but every day I get questions from people saying, do you endorse this product? And the answer is no. Um, but I have to stay independent because people want to know what the real story is. And there are some scientists, I will say, that that get money from companies that own part of supplement companies. And that, of course, is it's very hard to, to know if what they're saying is 100% unbiased, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. But we scientists, we like to fight a lot about what's right and what's wrong. And often I'm asked, which is better, NR and NMN? Now, they both do really good things to animals, but we don't know about humans yet. I will say that there are some trials ongoing with NR that I'm not running mm. that some have shown benefits in a, in a disease called ALS or Lou Gehrig's This disease. is in a, a mouse or a human? This is in humans, actually. Yeah. Very interesting. Right. But there are actually some studies with NR that show that there's no benefit in short-term studies. So it's still questionable. So NR is the precursor to NMN. Correct. Okay. So you're sort of skipping that step straight to NMN. Right. Which is in the precursor to NAD. Correct. Yep. And there are also studies with NMN uh, that also show reduced inflammation, but it's still very early. There's only been a couple of studies with NMN in, in people. Now, if, if I am conflicting, conflicted, it's in the following way. I am helping and have some ownership in a, in a biotech company that's developing NAD boosters as drugs. Now, very interesting. So, so this is like pharmaceutical. It is. Yeah, it's a company called Metro Biotech. So in full disclosure, there's that. But that company is developing NR-like molecules and NMN. I don't have, you know, sure. any, any horses in the race that... So how is... So some of these brands that are selling them, I guess, online, not as a pharmaceutical product, right? Like as a food supplement almost. Right. What's the difference between getting something like this, I guess, registered as a pharmaceutical product versus a product under FDA or whatever, whatever it is? Oh, about $500 million difference and 10 years. So pharmaceuticals uh, are really difficult. Most fail. You need a lot of money. You need to go through rigorous clinical trials of We've been doing clinical trials, safety studies with these molecules for the last two years. Everything looks good so far. And a lot of safety studies um, in animals as well. No sign of any negative effects. Or- so, But you can see when you administer NR or NMN to a human, their NAD levels go up. Well, just to be clear, it's not the same as the molecules you can buy on the internet. These are more advanced gotcha. molecules. Yeah. Um, but they do the same thing. They do... And the answer is yes. When we give NAD precursors to humans, we can, in some cases, double the NAD levels of those subjects. So the stuff online, you're sort of buying without fully understanding exactly that molecule and whether it has been clinically tested, the stuff that's available right now online. Well, some companies, I won't name them, but some companies are doing their own clinical trials. 
So that's good. I applaud that. But yeah, they're selling them before they actually know whether they work or not. It's a different business model. Right? Yeah. You, you make the money to pay for the trials, whereas I'm raising the money to do the trials so that eventually there will be a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can almost just put that that disclaimer that you see on pretty much everything on the shelves that says this product has not been evaluated by the FDA. Right. So if I have a drug, then I will say this has been clinically tested and approved by the FDA, which is very different, but it's a long-term strategy. But what I, I want to do is to, if there's ever anything that's given to patients, I want to know A, that it's safe and B, that it works. Is that the world you think we're moving to, to a, a world where on top of these lifestyle habits that we're sort of working our way through to to increase our health span, that there will be uh, something that we can supplement that increases not only our health span, but also our lifespan. And how old do you think we can actually get to? Well, yeah, we are moving to that world. The analogy would be before antibiotics, we used to eat bone broth soup and whatever to try and ward off colds. Uh, and infections. Then we developed antibiotics and we have vaccines as well. And we could basically treat these diseases. We're in that mode where uh, we we do exercise and we do fasting, which is basically the equivalent of chicken soup. Mm. It helps, right? But it's not the only thing we can do. We can develop medicines that will help our bodies as well. And that combination of good health and the medicines, I think, is going to lead to much greater longevity. How long? Well, I think it's it's not that hard looking at others. If you lead a, a really great lifestyle to be healthy in your 90s, to make it to 100. Beyond that, I think you need a little extra help. That's where uh, these molecules come in. But I, I don't see why we couldn't uh, have people living to 110. Now, what about the outliers? Can, can we bust the breakthrough? The, Which the is what, like limit? 120 is the limit? Yeah. Something like that? Right. It's, it's debated because the longest lived woman at 122... Some people say that wasn't real, but there are certainly people that made it to 115, 16, 17. That's currently what I'd say is the the limit. I don't see why we can't break through that. In animal studies, even just periodic fasting changes the maximum. And those people that made it that long, they didn't live particularly healthy lifestyles. You know, the, the longest lived woman at 122, she smoked till she was 99 or I think older. So th- these are people that were just lucky. Mm. But imagine if... So in that scenario... There, I mean, we spoke before about genetics being sort of 20% of one's longevity. But in that scenario, you're saying there are, of course, outliers who just are born with incredibly strong genes. Yeah. And there's luck. There's luck. You know, when it comes to cancer, you can develop a tumor just because you got a mu- you have a mutated gene. And if you have 5 billion people that you're measuring, one of those is going to be lucky enough not to get that mutation and have cancer, lucky enough that uh, their information was preserved for, for various reasons. You know, typically these are people that are not living in, in cities where there's pollution, which are causing even more DNA breaks and accelerating the demise of the epigenome. Yeah, the blue these, zones. The blue zones, exactly. They eat the right, accidentally eat the right mm. foods. Have you caught up with Dan Butner before? Do you know of him? I, I know him. I think you'd have a great... Fascinating conversation. You guys need to connect. We do actually. Yeah. Okay. So what what I think would be really fascinating is you mentioned the Horvath clock before would be, and no doubt this will happen in clinical trials with some of these supplements and then using that as an outcome of measuring, are you able to wind that clock back? 
Exactly. That's that's why the clock is also important, is that we can quickly test whether these interventions, as we call them, are working. And now you can you can imagine that slowing down aging might take a few years to see the effect. But there are some hints that it's possible to, to reverse aging in people. One is the research that I've just told you about, how we can reset the eye. But there was also a, a recent study that Steve Horvath was part of, came out of uh, Californian labs. Greg Fahey was one. And so what, what they showed was that if you give a combination of testosterone, DHEA, and metformin, the diabetes drug, Steve calculated that the age of those people went back about two years, which is a little bit. Wow. And I would say it's the beginning. I would have thought testosterone would have decreased lifespan, so that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm not sure about that study. Steve says it's, it's, it's real, but it was only a small number of people, nine, nine people. Yeah. But I raise it because it, it opens your mind to the possibility of turning back aging. What happened to those people that, that I think is believable is that their thymi, thymuses, uh, regrew. This is the one of the, the organs at the base of the brain. This uh, organ actually de- declines as we get older. We want to rebuild that as we get older. It's crazy. So metformin, right? You've, you, we've gone through uh, NMN and Reservatrol. Metformin's another medication that's at the on that page of yours. So you take that? I take metformin, yeah. Well, how does that actually play into this information theory of aging? Uh, so metformin will stimulate AMP kinase, which is one of the three pillars of longevity. And AMP kinase is important for sensing how much energy we're eating. The metformin will trick your body into thinking that you're not taking in enough sugar and carbohydrates. Currently, it's a, it's a, a drug for people with diabetes, right? Right. So do you see that as being potentially a, a, a drug that anyone can, can get a prescription for in the future? to slow down aging? Well, I stand on the soapbox and I say aging is a disease um, and we should think of it as a disease. And it's important that we do that because then doctors will think about aging as something that's treatable. But right now, because aging isn't a disease, they doctors typically won't give you metformin until you get sick, which I think, as I've said, is, is the wrong way of going about medicine. And so I'm, I'm working hard to convince countries to be able to think differently about the prevention of disease. So if you take metformin, it's going to delay or completely prevent type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is one of the best ways to age prematurely. And so I think it it would be helpful if doctors uh, were able to ethically prescribe these medicines before people got too old. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's going to require a whole shift to the to healthcare system, right, for that to happen. Well, it, it's just a law. It wouldn't be that hard. It's just that there's a lot of momentum and, you know, 100 years of history of doctors thinking that their job is to treat diseases, not to prevent them. Hey, friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. What needs to change at a a sort of policy level for that to happen? Can you see that happening in your lifetime? Uh, Yes. 10 years ago, I thought no. But in the last 10 years, particularly in the last two years, 
TGA, FDA are seriously entertaining that possibility. Now, I think what's probably going to happen is that a smaller country is going to declare aging a medical condition. We've already had the World Health Organization declare old age as a medical condition. So that's a good start. But it could be Israel, could be Singapore, one of these smaller countries that says we're going to do this. And then other countries will wake up and probably follow suit. And their incentive would be to to lower the overall sort of burden on the healthcare system. Well, exactly. If you keep people healthy in old age, the, the cost savings are in the trillions of dollars here in the US alone. And we forget how much of a burden the elderly are. If you get sick in your 60s and 70s, you're going to be much more expensive than if you get sick in, at 100. Okay? And and in the period when you're you're old and healthy, the fit aged people, like my father, who's 80, who just started a whole new career and is traveling and, you know, keeping the economy running. Those are the people that we want. Mm. And it's the ones with chronic diseases that have foot ulcers and amputations and diabetes and blindness that are the really expensive ones. We're paying for those people that didn't take care of themselves. Mm. Okay. So I met Foreman. We spoke about Reservatrol. We spoke about polyphenols. We've spoken about NMN or NR. Is there, are there any other sort of supplements that you recommend? Well, I don't recommend supplements, uh, but I-, I Is there it, any that, that you take personally? Everything else on page 304 is real. I do vitamin K2, mm-hmm. vitamin D3. These are important ones. Occasionally, I take berberine, which is what's called poor man's uh, metformin. Um, berberine looks good. We've studied it. It seems to be helpful also like metformin to boost the mitochondrial activity of the body. That, that's those are the main things. Um, does that affect blood sugar, or is that it does? It actually makes your body insulin sensitive and reduces blood sugar. So it, yeah. it's very clear that blood sugar levels associate and predict longevity, associate with and predict longevity. So do you try and this brings up, I guess, more of a, a dietary pattern question for you? Where where do you sit on the on the the carbohydrate and sort of low carbohydrate, high carbohydrate? fence in terms of what you think is best from a longevity point of view because some of the i mean there's obviously very lots of different types of carbohydrates but some of the blue zones are eating an enormous amount of carbohydrates yet living long lives yeah it's um usually those people who are eating high amounts of carbohydrates let's take okinawa they're eating white rice they they offset it i think with what else they're doing they're eating small amounts of food they exercise or they're moving a lot. I don't, I don't think the kind of carbohydrates that we eat here in the Western world are healthy at all. I'm stating what everyone seems to know, which is you know fructose and sucrose, glucose. These are enemies of our body. So I try to avoid any refined sugars, period. I don't drink sodas, my children. Mm. I don't think I've ever had soda. So I'm tr- I also try to eat, if I'm eating carbohydrates, it'll be whole grains. So that slow release of the sugar. You don't want these huge spikes. There's two things that are a problem with that. The high spikes will exacerbate your loss of information. Um, It'll repress your sirtuins. It'll lead to diabetes eventually. Is that something that you studied? You've done quite a bit of work with yeast cells as well, right? We haven't spoken about that. But have you done sort of feeding with sugars at that level or was it in my... Yeah, we have. You can cause aging in yeast if you give them high sugar as well. It's, It's a very ancient system. And then also what high sugar does to you is it'll create a lot of hunger when you get this crash after the the high. Uh, And then having high amounts of sugar also will what's called glycosylate proteins. And you can actually measure it. Your doctor can measure it. 
your hemoglobin, for example, gets glycosylated. We call it HbA1c. This is bad, uh, typically, for proteins to have uh, glycation. Is that AGEs? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, age-associated glycation. And this, this is a modification on proteins that's very hard to remove. And that's why you need autophagy to get rid of those proteins that have become glycated. Okay, so no refined carbohydrates. And I think, I think in America, it's something like 60% of calories here come from eating refined foods, which is a crazy amount. Well, it's, it's shocking. If we want to cause a mouse to get sick, we just give it a wet, what we call a Western diet. Yeah. It's basically sugar and fat. Yeah. Okay. Uh, protein. What's, what's the, the, the science showing in terms of low protein versus high protein or animal versus plant protein in terms of feeding into these longevity pathways? Uh, well, so you want to have part of your day with, with low amounts of protein circulating. I, I like you, I, I, I'm not totally against meat. I think that if you occasionally want to eat meat, especially if it's just fish, that's fine. Uh, so what I do is I typically eat probably six days a week, uh, vegetables and occasionally eat meat, you know, usually socially at dinner. Uh, the rest of the time it's plant-based. So why do I do that? Well, plants have lesser amounts of the branch chain amino acids, mm-hmm. valine, isoleucine, leucine. And because these are the ones that are going to, low amounts of these amino acids will trigger your mTOR defenses. Remember, mTOR is stimulating autophagy. So I'm also avoiding red meat because of the TMAO, which is a, a byproduct of meat, which is known to cause cardiovascular disease. So that's the other downside of red meat. Now, I love red meat like a lot of people, but for ethical reasons and also for health reasons, I try to avoid it. I might eat red meat maybe once every few months and that's it. But I, I disagree with the carnivores who say that meat is going to this was actually my next question for you because I know you've had a, a discussion with one or a few of them and I probably should have raised it with the xenohormesis side of things. But what, yeah, what's, what's your take on this idea of removing plants, eating a, a diet that 100% of calories come from various animal products and how that would affect these aging pathways? Yeah, well, it, it's at least twofold. You don't get the xenohermetic benefits of the polyphenols and the resveratrol-like molecules the oleic acid, but you also have, have the problem that you've got a huge amount of protein. Now, it's true that in the short run, you might actually look better and maybe even feel better. Uh, you might. Uh, if you've got a lot of protein, you're going to go into that growth and reproductive phase versus the-, mm. the And you may have removed survive. something from your diet that wasn't agreeing with you. So, you know, a, a sort of strict elimination diet in some form. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that you've, you've, you've got to have plants. Plants, we know, are full of molecules that'll keep your body healthy in the long run. So, you know, again, let's think about this balance between growth and reproduction and survival and hunkering down long-term. So one is basically, I'll use another analogy. You can, your body can quickly put up a house, a quick condo that looks like crap, but it's quick. That's what's going to happen if you eat a lot of meat. Um, you're going to go into that phase of quickly building things. Whereas you could do it the German way, my wife's German, so I can say this, they build houses to last for hundreds of years. But that's that's harder, that takes more time. And I think if you're eating plant-based food, your body is in that mode. Build a strong foundation that's going to last longer. Now you can switch between them. It's okay to eat meat once in a while, but I think permanently throwing up crappy condos, it's going to look good quickly. So you're putting your foot on that accelerator. I think so. I, I would seriously be worried about you know, 30 years of a carnivore diet, what would what would be left of your body? Mm. The next part of, of that question that I have for you 
is you mentioned there the sort of isoleucine, leucine and uh, valine, right? I've heard some people suggest that the sort of activation of, of mTOR um, or increased levels of IGF-1 in the postprandial state just after eating isn't something to be worried about and it's more if it's constantly elevated. What do you think about that? Yeah, that makes sense. It, again, it fits with my idea that you want part of your day to be in this defensive survival mode. It doesn't always have to be that way, but you need it sometimes. So that's why any diet, any diet that's consistently the same is probably bad. Okay. I think you want to mix it up. And and so you you said before having part of your day with minimal protein. So would you suggest then, you know, you talk about you you skip breakfast. Would you suggest then having one of those meals of lunch or dinner as like the main protein meal and the other one sort of less focused on protein? I mean, if you want to eat more than one meal a day, sure. Yeah. So what I do if I'm if I need some energy and I need to think during the during lunchtime, I will have low protein lunch. I'll have a a salad with some olive oil on it, something like that, and try to avoid sushi, which I've you know recently found by monitoring myself to be really bad, actually. Oh, really? I used to eat sushi every day. So, so what have you found? What were you monitoring? Well, I was monitoring blood sugar yeah. levels. So I had one of those uh, devices you stick on your arm with a little needle, and it's for two weeks you can see what's going on. And I noticed that white rice is horrifically bad. Grapes are bad. I wonder if they put a bit of uh, sugar in that white rice. Probably, they yeah, may. I bet they do. It, it was just shocking to me, so I can't eat sushi often anymore. That's interesting. Mm. But it's important to to measure yourself because if, if you don't measure it, you don't know what's going on. The other thing about measuring it is that I finally realized that um, what I put into my mouth actually has a big effect on my body. If you don't look at things, you actually typically treat your mouth as a trash can. Yeah. Trash can. So you had one of the sort of continuous blood glucose monitors attached. Yeah. If people are wondering, it's the one called LibraLink. Uh, I've seen Habit. that. Yeah. yeah seen you that. can just put your phone up to it and it'll give you a graphical readout. And that was surprising. I found out that my body is different than a lot of other people's bodies. My body is, is I think 20% of us start making a lot of blood sugar in the morning. And so that's one of the reasons I don't need breakfast because my body makes its own sugar. I feel fine without any food, but others, I need food in the morning. Yeah. So the, the take-home lesson here is that you do what feels right for you. If you need breakfast, eat it, but then I would skip lunch. Okay. So that's, that's food. We've kind of touched on exercise and you talked about having some high intensity exercise. Is that something that you're rec- you recommend daily or a certain number of times a week or is a certain amount of time better than others? Is, t- is there too much? Well, there's definitely too much. And you can see that just if you measure your blood, you can see creatine kinase goes through the roof. You know you're exercising too much when it, it takes too long to recover. If it takes more than a few days, you've overdone it. And I, I'm guilty as charged. I would exercise more if I had the time. I spend most of my time in hotels and, and on airplanes and then hanging out with my kids. So what I do is I, I take my son to the gym once a week. We spend three hours there doing a variety of things. We start with weightlifting. Weightlifting is really great. I think you would agree. Mm. We do the hip hinge exercises, deadlifts, just to get the, the big muscles in the body working and bulked up. And it's important, I guess, while we're talking about aging to try and maintain some some muscle mass as we get older. Oh, it's essential. It's essential that every 19 minutes in the US, someone falls over and is debilitated from breaking the hip. You've got to maintain the strength if you want to survive. There's an, an adage in our field, which is 
the best way to live longer is to hang on to the handrail. I would say the best way to live longer is to build up your strength of your hips and your legs so that you you don't fall over and don't break your, your bones. But you know, my father at 80, he goes to the gym three times a week. So I think that's a good amount of exercise three times a week. And he does a lot of uh, weights as well. And actually over the age of 50, you're, you're losing a percent or so every year of muscle mass. And the only way to counteract that is to be lifting weights. So that's exercise. How about sleep? I know that you talk about hot, cold therapy, these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I also do, before we get to that, uh, we do high intensity exercise. So I do sled pushing. I find that, you know, I, I'm pretty, uh, I have ADHD when it comes to things. So I don't like to spend a lot of time doing them. So I can't so run marathons. Hard. I'd go crazy with my own mind talking to itself. So I do sled pushing on a treadmill. Treadmill, you, you know, you can set the sled push mode. I didn't know that. And you, you have what is it, 30 seconds to go as fast and as hard as you can. And then I do that five times. And by the end of it, I feel like throwing up. And that's usually <laughs> a good sign. Uh, sleep is very important. Sleep, turns out your circadian rhythms, as they're called, are intimately connected to the longevity. Sirtuins, going back to these survival pathways that preserve information, they also control your body's clock. So it's all connected. If you, if you screw up the sirtuins, if you're obese or you get old, you don't have the right amount of NAD, you'll have sleep disruption. But conversely, if you disrupt your sleep, you'll also mess up your body's defenses. So you've got to get a good night's sleep. When you say good night, is there a certain number of hours or is it the quality that matters most? Both. I mean, it depends on people's physiology. Some people get by with just six hours. I find I need seven. But I wear a ring, the Aura, O-U-R-A ring, that tells me how well I've slept. And that way I've been able to optimize what I do before I go to sleep so that I get a good night's sleep. What do you try and do is try and stay off the, the phone or? Uh, well, I, I wear these uh, blue light yeah. blocking glasses. I uh, try to not look at my email for the last half an hour, an hour of the day. Try not to look at screens. To slow the mind down. There's that. Um, do you find you wake, if you wake up and your mind starts that you can't get back to sleep? I used to. I've developed meditative processes. I, I go to a happy place. I think of things and that gets me back to sleep usually. I do take a melatonin, which in the US you can just buy in any chemist, pharmacy. But I also have learned that if I overeat or overdrink, then that's going to screw up my REM sleep and then my deep sleep. And so I try not to have a big meal. You know, occasionally you're out and you have a big night. Yeah. That's the, the reason you wake up feeling crappy in part is because you have bad sleep. And the other reason is that your liver has run out of NAD. Uh, and I actually find that anecdotally, of course, that Boosting NAD levels allows me to cope with more alcohol. How much NAD do you take? Or the NMN? The NMN. So yeah. I'm, I'm taking, it depends on the day. I'm actually, cha I change what I take depending on how I feel because I know that much about my body, but it's roughly 750 milligrams or a gram of NMN every morning. I don't take it at night because it actually keeps me awake. And NAD levels do control your sleep-wake cycle and you don't want to have high levels of NAD before going to bed. Yeah. So you, are you, I know you don't name brands, but are you are you taking a, a product that's for available on the internet or is this something that you make yourself? I make it myself because I, I don't know what I'm getting if I buy yeah. it, unfortunately. Now, in general with supplements, I would say go with trusted brands, not fly-by-night groups. So they're generally trustworthy. Look for a seal of approval. Um, also look for a quality assurance. So sometimes companies give you a printout of the independent quality assurance 
that is also very helpful. So look for that. And there's also something called GMP, which is Good Manufacturing Practices, which also says that they didn't put metal filings in it or whatever. It's actually uh, done under real lab conditions. We'll have to chat later about your own personal stash. Uh, the, the, the hot cold therapy. Yeah. Um, let's touch on that quickly. So I think these are sort of buzzwords we hear lots of people talking about, um, saunas and ice baths. How, how do these play into aging? Uh, well, so when I was writing the book, my editor said, can you talk about cold therapy? And I said, oh, do I have to? I'm a real scientist. This stuff is probably BS. But I looked into it. And it actually, uh, it does make scientific sense. Well, most of the data is on saunas because it's been studied better. In uh, Norway, they've studied a lot of mostly men who do sauna bathing, as they call it. So three, three days a week of sauna bathing is actually beneficial. Uh, these men have less cardiovascular disease and better overall health. So that seems to be believable. There's one caveat, though. If you're in hospital or you're sick, you probably don't go to the sauna. But, you know, that caveat aside, I think think it's probably good. And I've, I've started going to the sauna at least once a week with my son. That's part of our regimen. Now, the cold shock, less is known because we haven't studied it as much as scientists, but it does make scientific sense. When you're cold, you activate what's called brown fat. Your white fat will start to turn brown or beige. And what's happening is that that fat starts to make a lot more mitochondria. It's found typically across your back. And in fact, 20 years ago, we didn't even know that there was such thing as brown fat in adults. It was it's for babies to, to stay warm, actually. But with brown fat, what happens is it seems to be healthy. People that have more brown fat seems to have better health. And brown fat does two good things. One is it revs up the metabolism of the body. So you're, you know, more metabolism, metabolism is always good. You don't want to get obese. And the second thing it does is that brown fat releases proteins into the body that also seem to protect you against diabetes and perhaps other ailments. We don't know what those molecules are in general. There's a couple that are interesting, uh, one called irisin that was discovered at Harvard. But I think that it's believable. And that's also why I, I also do cold therapy as well. So would it make sense then, even while you're sort of sleeping at night, to, to be sleeping in a cool room rather than a, a warmer room? Yeah, it does, actually. Even last night, I threw off the blankets. You sleep better when you're a bit cooler anyway. And this ring has told me that that it's better to have a slightly yeah. cooler body temperature to sleep better. It's interesting. A- anecdotally speaking, I know my girlfriend prefers it warmer. We're always fighting over the temperature. And, and other people I speak to is usually the male who wants it cooler, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my wife and I, we have separate blankets <laughs> for that reason. It's also good because you, you don't want to yeah. be fighting over it. But it also the, there's a theory that my friend Ray Cronus and I have come up with called the metabolic winter hypothesis. And that is that part of the ailments of the modern world is because we don't experience temperature changes. In particular, we don't ever feel cold if we don't want to. Mm. And being cold has benefits, we think have benefits. And by staying warm, we're actually uh, contributing to diseases. So cold shower first thing in the morning could be a good idea. Well, I couldn't do it. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I really don't like the feeling of being cold. But recently I jumped in an ice bath um, I was over at Laird Hamilton's place and Gabby Reese's place in Malibu. I think I saw a photo that you put up. Yeah. Uh, the first five seconds are shocking because your, your body goes into shock and you start breathing heavily. But once you calm yourself down and breathe slowly, it's actually fine. By the third minute, I was ready. You did to three minutes there. in there? I did three minutes. Yeah. And, and actually I could have gone longer because at that yeah. point I couldn't feel anything anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of broke through that, yeah. that point. But we, we were really hot. We were in a sauna that 
uh, what was it? It was uh, close to 200 degrees, over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So that's 100 and something Celsius. That was so hot that 20 minutes in there, I was feeling dizzy and I was going to pass out. Then you go out, take a quick shower and jump in this ice bath. It's a real shock to the body, but you feel great. You feel uh, grateful to be alive too. Yeah. Now, speaking of feeling grateful to be alive, and I think a nice way to to sort of close out this episode, I think we we come back and hopefully connect again and do a part two on the sort of economic and sustainability implications of a, an aging population and keeping people alive to, to 120 or 150 or whatever it is. But I think your father, who you mentioned before, who is living proof of someone that is thriving in their, in their older age, sort of speaks to this idea of how gratifying it can be to slow down the clock. What's his program like and how much has observing him sort of given you an understanding of how important it is for, for people to live in good health into their later years? Well, my, it was, it's my father that's given me the most optimism of all. He's a, a shining example of what can happen if you take hold of your life and, and actually do something about it. He was a fairly lethargic, sedentary 40-year-old with, with a pot belly by his own admission, and the photos prove it. Uh, he turned my age, so I'm now 50, and he said, to hell with this, I'm going to turn my life around. He started exercising. In his 70s, he started taking resveratrol. Uh, in his late 70s, started taking NMN and metformin. So he's on the same NMN program? Same as me. Yeah. We're pretty similar. We're both scientists, so we can read the data We and we talk a lot about it. Uh, it's not like I'm experimenting on my dad. He's his own guy. Uh, but what's been remarkable is that A, it, it hasn't hurt him, but B, he's gone from a, a guy that was just a regular guy to someone who's excited, optimistic, super healthy. He never gets sick. He's stronger than I am. We've tested this in the gym with my trainer. And he started a new career. He's now working at Sydney Uni. And he just ordered and received his dream car, which was a Model 3 Tesla. Uh, he's He goes out most nights. He's got a whole bunch of friends. He's got girlfriends and uh, travels the world. He's living life like he's 30 at 80. Who wouldn't want that mm. for their parents? Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost sort of contrary to to what most people think is normal, right? Like you mentioned at 50, he turned his life around. Most people would assume that when they get to 50, things start to slow down. Yeah. Now, aging is is more malleable than we ever thought. Um, and that's the take-home message. Start now because it's, it's, it's important to start early, but it's also never too late unless you're extremely frail, then, it, then you've got a problem, but you don't want to get there. And with the coronavirus taking over the planet, it's the frail people who are at risk. So my solution to this is get healthy right now. Yeah. There's never been a better time to be healthy. Speaking of coronavirus, we didn't touch on it, but you sort of briefly mentioned to me earlier that fasting may be of benefit potentially. Yeah, it's true that the the studies, at least in in mice, are that if they fast before they get an infection, it actually boosts their immune system. If you fast for three days, you'll have a whole turnover in your immune system and rejuvenation. And so I think in preparation for this, people should be doing the kind of things we're talking about. It's debatable though, if when you get sick, it's better to be hungry or not. There are some studies that show if you overfeed a mouse while it's sick, it's worse. And there's also studies that if you calorically restrict a mouse severely, it will also do worse. Yeah. So I don't think we can say yet 
what you should do if you get sick. I think that it might be dangerous to restrict calories mm. if you've got coronavirus. I don't want to say that. You probably want to but make sure. leading up, you want to be optimal health. Yeah. Interesting. Going forward, as you said before, you were writing the book and, and essentially predicting the future. You're on the cutting edge of science. What, what research are you working on or would you love to see be published to change the way that further change the way that we're looking at aging? Well, we're, we're working on publishing the reversal of aging in the eye and the reprogramming of the epigenome, the reset button. And you asked me earlier, where is that information kept? We don't actually know where the reset information is, where the software backup is kept. We know how to access it with these OSK genes, this gene therapy. Is it important for you to discover where that is kept? It is. That's what half my lab is working on now, is to find where that information is. It could be a chemical change to the DNA. It could be a protein that does it, that uh, is laid down when we're babies. We don't know yet, but we want to find it because that'll be the, the real secret to uh, figuring out how to improve our bodies, be resilient, and live a lot longer. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much, David. It's it's very inspiring to sit down with you and to discuss this space of aging with someone who is so optimistic about what the future looks like. If If people would like to connect with you, of course, I'll, I'll put everything into the show notes, but what's the best place to, to find you online? Uh, so we have a, a website with a newsletter um, and it's called lifespanbook.com. And I'm on social media as well, Twitter, Instagram, and all that good stuff. I've set that up so that I can give the public updates on where the science is going and how the clinical trials are turning out. Beautiful. All right, well, please come back. Let's sit down again. And, and as I said, we can do part two, maybe in Bondi Beach when you're in Australia next. Sounds good. Thanks, Simon. Sounds good. Thanks, Simon. Well, there you go, friends. If you made it this far, I am going to assume that you found it as interesting as I did. And if you're anything like me, you probably have many more questions. Don't stress, I can almost guarantee that David and I will will connect again and and sit back down to peel back the layers even more. What would a world look like with an average life expectancy over 100 and people regularly living to 120, 150 years of age? How would this affect the economy? In the meantime, let David know what you thought by finding him on Instagram at David Sinclair PhD or on Twitter at David Sinclair. You can find me on both too at plant underscore proof. And guys, as I said in the introduction, I really do hope each and every one of you is doing okay in this very crazy time. My thoughts are with you and your families, particularly those who have been directly affected by COVID-19. And of course, everyone else who, who's still affected, whether that be emotionally or financially, it's a, it's a tough, tough time. But humans have, have showed, we've showed many times in the past, we are a resilient and creative species. And I personally have faith that we will come out of this for the better. And although it may seem hard to imagine, ultimately be thankful for what this experience has offered us. Expect an episode out next week with Rich Roll and then episode 100. I sit down with Drew Harrisburg again to gather my thoughts and and reflect together on the past year, debrief on the present and what we can perhaps take away from our experiences in, in 2020 to create a better future. 
it's an episode I'm, I'm really looking forward to to having and and being able to share with you. On that note, let's leave this one here. See you next week for episode 99 with Rich Roll.